Good morning. For those that uh, don't know me, I am uh, Bruce Rugsma. I'm the pastor of Community and Spiritual Formation. I think we have some pictures to show. I got a, I got a finger to wear. There we go. From our baptism, August 4th, we did a baptism. Uh, we were excited about that. We did it out at Lake Independence. I think seven people, I was there, I should know that piece of information, but I think seven people were baptized. It was a lot of fun. If you weren't able to be there, there's some great pictures of it. Uh, the lake was low, but not so low that we couldn't get people underwater. So that's good. Um, <laughs> We're excited about that. Again, for those who don't know me, I'm Bruce Drugsma, pastor of community and spiritual formation here at Wyzetta Free. I'm excited to be up here this morning to be sharing with you. I'm going to start by telling you a story from my child, not my childhood, from my young adulthood, we'll call it, after I got married, but before I had kids. In my mind, apparently that's childhood, but... Uh, <laughs> I got a motorcycle. I got an 82 Suzuki GS850G, for those that care. Um, I loved it. I enjoyed it, but it had a lot of issues. Vintage motorcycles tend to have issues. And I blew the head gasket is one of those issues. Did a complete rebuild. My wife and I have two sets of twins. They play into this story, for those that don't know me. The first set was born right when the motorcycle kind of started being fishy. Uh, by the time the second set of twins was coming, we decided, uh, I decided that it was no longer worth it to have a motorcycle that had nothing but issues. So when the generator went out, the motorcycle went out. And uh, I w- went for a few years without one. This past summer, though, now that my kids are eight and almost 12, it was time, it was worth the effort to have a vintage motorcycle. My father-in-law had five uh, motorcycles at his disposal. A couple years ago, he passed away. I bought one of those. Again, for those that care, it's an 82 Suzuki GS550L. Um, significant difference. Um, but anybody that knows anything about vintage motorcycles knows that they are carbureted and knows that if they sit for multiple years without running, that's a problem. And so I took that motorcycle, gave it to my friend Jim to work on. He rebuilt the carburetors, fixed the front forks, put new tires on it, all sorts of fun stuff. And suddenly I have a motorcycle again, and I've been loving this summer being out riding. And in fact, a few weeks ago when we did the outdoor worship uh, and picnic, a group of us went on a ride together, and we went west of here on our motorcycles. We went on the back roads. We ended at Dairy Queen in Delano, which is a great place to end a motorcycle ride, before we went home, and there we are. Um, we had a great time, and for me, it held that special significance because finally I was back to having time to put into a motorcycle and all the putziness that that entails. Because it's worth the effort for me, and, and we can disagree on whether or not it's worth it, but it's worth it to me to wear the heavy gear in the summer heat. It's worth it to me to f- mess around with carburetors and issues. For others, it's not. One of the other things that I think is worth it, I think coffee is always worth it. Some of you aren't ready for that truth, but it's there. There, I'm just going to say it. But we have these different things because we look at our calendar and we look at our emotional capacity and we look at our risk management or whatever, and we have different things that we determine are worth it or not. And yet there are some things that we should all agree are worth the effort. Relationships is one of them, right? We should all agree that maybe not every relationship, I can't be in deep personal friendship with everybody, but we need relationship in our life and we need to spend time on that. It's worth the effort. Well, this morning we are going to look in Acts. 
For those of you that have been with us over the summer, we've been doing a series called Good Summer Reads. We finished that up last week. But last school year, we were studying the book of Acts. We're getting back into it this this morning, starting a new series called Unleashed. We're going to see the gospel move forward. We're going to see the missionary journeys of Paul take that to the known world. And we're going to see the power of that unleashed in our world. And so we're going to be digging into that. But just like uh, if you weren't, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you weren't here last school year, or maybe you're visiting, I'm going to give kind of the season one recap of where we've been before we jump into season two. Unlike Netflix, there's no skip button, so you have to deal with me. We are going to go through this. Um, because these passages don't stand all alone on their own, and we need to get the context. So we're going to back up to Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas go off on their first missionary journey together. They bring the gospel around in, in, through their, through these other communities. And they come back in Acts 15 because all of these Gentiles, non-Jewish people are, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And they come back to Jerusalem and share that story. And they also have this council in Jerusalem where the believers get together and say, okay, we have these people who don't share the same cultural background as us. And, and what should we put on them? What's required of these non-Jewish believers? And they come to the conclusion, um, that, that, there are certain religious prerogatives that the Jewish people hold that are not required of the non-Jewish believers. And later on in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas decide to go out again and revisit these and take the go- these communities and take the gospel to new ones. But they disagree over whether or not John Mark should go with them. John Mark was with them for part of their journey, left when it got hard. Paul says, that's it. I'm done. I don't want John Mark. Barnabas says, no, let's give him a second chance. They disagree over this enough that they both continue on the same mission, but do so separately. Barnabas takes John Mark. Paul takes Silas, and they go out, uh, second half of Acts 15. In Acts 16, Timothy, another believer, joins Paul and Silas. So now it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, And they're going around and they end up in Philippi where they go to prison. God intervenes, they get released, and now we're in Acts 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. So that's kind of the backstory. In Acts 17, imagine we're in a tour bus with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're going to go on tour. We're going to make three stops on their tour. We're going to see them engage three different towns in Acts 17. And we're going to see some differing responses. And we're going to see how the gospel is shared. And for some of you, you're hearing me say gospel and you go, yes, we're going to talk about the gospel. For those that don't know what that word means, that's from the Greek. It's, uh, it's actually from the old English, good news, God spell, which is a translation of good news in Greek, which is evangelion, which is where we get evangelism. It's this idea of sharing the gospel. The, the gospel is sharing the gospel. It's this idea of sharing about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And for some of you, that's a positive memory from your childhood or from your entire life that you go, yes. Others of you have heard that in a different context where it's been something used to show you how you should submit or behave or something else. And so before you dismiss me or celebrate me, we're going to dig into what that word means this morning as we stop in all these three towns and unpack what the gospel really is and what it looks like despite what we might think it is. And so our first stop this morning is in Thessalonica. And we are going to see here that the gospel is worth the risk. 
We're going to see the gospel is worth the risk. Paul is going to bring the gospel in, and there's a risk involved when we share the gospel. Now, before we go too far into this story, I want to share one other story. This one actually is from my childhood. Um, I want to share one other story. Because Paul, Luke, the author of Acts, is going to share this story about Paul. And he's painting with a broad brush. And he's giving us a snapshot of how the city of Thessalonica responds in this moment. He's not giving us the details of how individual people respond. I'm an includer. I like to include everybody. Um, Some people are going to respond positively and negatively. And even though he paints with these broad brushes through these towns as we visit them, please note that we're talking about real people, individual people. And as we take the gospel, we're dealing with individual people, not broad brushes. The example I give from my childhood is I was a wrestler in sixth grade. I was a terrible wrestler. Uh, That's me in the middle row on your left. Uh, you can tell I'm a terrible wrestler because I'm wearing basketball shoes in the wrestling team picture. So, and don't I look so threatening there? Um, but in sixth grade, I was a wrestler. I was terrible. I didn't win a single wrestling match, not a single one until the very last match of the season. And I finally pinned a kid. I didn't just beat him. I pinned him. I was ecstatic. I was overjoyed. I was jumping up and down. I got on the bus. I had a grin from ear to ear. The coach got on the bus, turned around, looked at all of us, and he said, that was the worst performance I've seen out of this entire team. I don't want to hear a word till we get back to town. You see, that was a true statement. <laughs> we were terrible that night as a team. We didn't try very hard, except I did. In that moment, I did. I had my best match ever, but the team did horribly and most of them didn't try. And that's what I mean by painting with a broad brush. The coach was absolutely correct in what he said, and yet he was completely wrong with one person. So as Luke paints with broad brushes, and as we look at how we bring the gospel to our world and paint with broad brushes, remember the individual. The gospel is worth the risk. Acts 17, the first nine verses. When Paul and his companions had passed through M. Amphipolis, I think I'm saying that right, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Now, a couple of things I want to highlight. First, let's take a second to look in this section at what is meant by the gospel. We see in verse 2 that in this context, Paul is sharing that gospel in the synagogue. Paul is Jewish. He, as his custom, goes to the synagogue. The synagogue is the Jewish people meeting in a city to worship their God. 
That is his first place that he goes. Kevin has mentioned this in other messages that Paul is going to make this pattern and this custom. So as we see him share the gospel here, it's in the context of his people. He is surrounded by his people and he reasons with them from scripture. Now that scripture would be the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he is looking at the Old Testament and reasoning with them from scripture. And number three, he is sharing about Jesus Christ. He's using the Old Testament scriptures to share in this context about Jesus' death and resurrection. So what can we extrapolate from this about the gospel? That Paul is completely aware of his surroundings. As we go through and stop in different cities, please note how differently Paul is going to respond in each city and how differently he's going to unpack the gospel. We're looking at things that stay the same and things that are different. But his heart is for his people. But not his people alone. He starts there, but he doesn't limit it there. We're going to see God-fearing Greeks. We're going to see other people outside of the Jewish faith come to faith in Jesus Christ. And second, let's look at the reaction from those people. Paul comes in in the goodness of his heart. Paul comes in with well-intentioned, and the reaction is quick, and it is strong. Some are persuaded, others are not. And the text make it clear that it was not just Jews. Some Greeks are there and, quote, quite a few prominent women. God is at work here. Just like in Acts 15, one of the things that they did, the early churches, they looked and said, is God moving? God is at work. This shows evidence. God is moving through the Gentiles in this, in this community. And the text makes it clear. God was at work. So seeing this here is confirmation what had been seen earlier. And we also see that the issue of sharing the gospel, the reaction, the negative reaction, is not from Paul, nor is it from Silas, nor Timothy. It is from those who are not persuaded. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are there for the long haul. They're there to continue sharing the gospel. They are not the ones determining when somebody has had enough. They are not the ones saying, you've heard, you haven't responded, I'm moving on. They wait for their response. And their response is rejection. But sharing the gospel is worth that risk of rejection. Living out our faith is worth that risk because it's an eternal conversation we need to have. And if we risk losing a temporal relationship for the sake of an eternal one, that's worth the risk. Now maybe that rejection in our life isn't going to be this this dramatic. Hopefully you sharing the gospel doesn't turn into an angry mob trying to run you out of town. But we still face that rejection. And maybe it's not verbal or obvious. Maybe it's ghosting. Maybe it's a relationship that slowly drifts apart. But flat-out rejection does happen. But sharing who Jesus is and what he has done in our life is worth that risk. The gospel is worth the risk. And so Paul is driven out of town, and he's going to go on to our second stop. We're going to climb in the bus with him. We're going to go to our next stop, and our next stop is Berea. And here in Berea, we're going to see that the gospel is worth the effort. Now, Berea is about 45 miles away from Thessalonica. 45 miles, if you're walking, is quite a distance to walk. Okay? For us, we think 45 miles, that's how far we go when we want to go out for dinner. For them, this is an all-day journey. Yesterday morning, I woke up in a tent in Ely, and we had to pack up and come back here. We had a great couple of days away camping. It was a blast. That was, an, that was a long journey. I don't make the journey to Ely for dinner. This is comparable. This is a huge journey. It's going to take most of them, most people, most of the day 
to make that 45-mile journey. And I share that because it's going to come back into the story that it's that far away. Starting in verse 10 of Acts 17, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Notice they show up at the synagogue first again. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And first, I want to remind you that when it says they open the scriptures, again, it's the Old Testament. They're opening the Old Testament. And shameless plug, if that's hard for you, if you struggle with the Old Testament in October, we're bringing in a group, they're going to come in and do a seminar on understanding the Old Testament, I would encourage you to do it, shameless plug, Um, talk to me later if you want more information on that. But the gospel affirms all of scripture, even the parts that we struggle with and don't understand. The gospel includes all of scripture, not just our favorite verses. In fact, Timothy is on this journey with Paul. Paul will later write a letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, in which he will say, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Not some scripture, not the ones I like, all scripture. The gospel affirms all of scripture. And Luke wants us to see, the author of Acts, that unlike Thessalonica, the Jews here respond differently. Same gospel message in the synagogue through scripture, but they respond differently. But they don't respond differently because they're more holy. They don't respond more uh, differently because they're better looking or smarter. They respond differently because they're of more noble character, he says. And he wants to make sure we don't miss that. They're not smarter or holier or better. They are noble. I recently read a book called The Data Detective by Tim Harford in which he gives you 10 rules for engaging with statistics. And his first rule in there is search your feelings. Now, I'm a Star Wars fan. When I hear search your feelings, I think of Darth Vader. (laughs) That's not what he means. And he doesn't mean that we should look to our feelings to help us determine what is true. In fact, the exact opposite He says, oftentimes we see a headline on CNN or we read a headline on social media and we make assumptions of what that article is saying based on how it makes us feel. I agree, I like it, I disagree, I don't like it. And he is saying, before you engage, take a moment, see how you feel about it, see how that's skewing you already and take a step back and read the article. That's what he means by search your feelings. That's what Bereans do here. Paul brings them a shocking message. Your Old Testament, I'm here to tell you, Jesus was the Messiah it talked about. That is a shocking headline. And they step back and say, hey, I want to look at this. And so the gospel is worth the effort because it takes time. It takes time for the Bereans to look through scripture. Paul stays and reasons with them for many days. He doesn't come in and simply throw it out there and expect them to believe. He reasons with them. We need to be willing to put in the effort to have gospel conversations. And when somebody rejects a message that we share, 
When we think we shared God's truth, maybe they're not rejecting the message, but maybe the messenger, maybe our methodology, maybe they just need some time. Paul gives them that time. And we're going to see the people from Thessalonica are going to come and they're going to stir up trouble and they're going to drive them away. They're willing to walk the 45 miles to stir up trouble. And yet Paul stays as long as he can. And he even leaves people behind saying, as soon as you can, not right away, give them time to hear the message, then come and join me in Athens. As soon as you can. It's worth the effort. Oftentimes we as Christians encounter questions or concerns about the gospel and we are too quick to, res- to dismiss it as resistance. Oh, they ask some hard questions. They're just resistant to the gospel. We need to engage those conversations. It's worth the effort to have those conversations. It's worth the effort to sometimes say, I don't know, let's find out together. It's worth that effort. And that engagement is led not by a continual repeating of the same passages of scripture or simply arguing with them. Engagement is covered in kindness. Romans 2.4, another letter from Paul, says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Not reasoning, not argumentation, kindness, giving people time, letting them sit with a challenging thought. It's worth the effort. We see Paul has been sent to Athens, so our final stop this morning is with him in Athens. And here we're going to see that the gospel is worth engagement. And I don't mean engagement in the same way I just said effort. Okay, I mean engagement as in engaging what is around it. It is more than the effort of Berea. We will see here in this story that this engagement is more than simply deeper biblical research. Paul, I'm sure, stopped in a synagogue, but we don't have evidence of that in this story. We see him taking a different track. The gospel in Athens moves outside the synagogue to a world that is far different. The gospel in Athens needs to have traction in their world. What the Bible says in this city What the scriptures say in this city is not as important as what it does and how it engages. And it engages in the conversation of that city. Athens at the time is a city in decline. We know Athens from antiquity. We know it was this great city. By the time Paul shows up here, it's in decline. It's no longer the economic and cultural powerhouse it used to be. It is being overshadowed by Rome. It's a city in decline. Um, one, one historian from that era would say this about Athens. In Athens, it is easier to find a God than a man. The city is becoming more and more confused. They are starting to idealize and idolize human characteristics and worshiping that, worshiping that. In the sense, they're starting to worship every other human being and not worshiping any gods at all. They had turned to deifying human characteristics as the gods. And so as we see Paul engage, we have to have that cultural understanding. And I want you to see how it engages in that world. So starting in verse 16, this is our longest section, so bear with me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And I misspoke. I'm sorry, he does go to the synagogue. It is in here. We do have that, but see how quickly he moves out. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, 
as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Again, broad brush by Luke there. Um, We'll see later on that really not all of them are, but he's giving us a flavor for the city. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And a note about the gospel, you'll notice the message doesn't change. The message is repent. The message is Jesus Christ died and resurrected. But note also that the context of it changed significantly. The gospel engages in their culture and in their community. The packaging is significantly changed. He starts on common ground. You are a religious people. And he builds from there. Integrating their philosophers and their philosophy. Integrating their poetry. Engaging in their culture. We need to be aware of the culture we are bringing the gospel to. We can't stand back naively, ignoring what is going on and the conversations our friends and neighbors, coworkers and classmates are having and expect them to respond simply to our version of the gospel. We need to engage in the conversations of this world and bring the gospel light into that. The gospel is worth engaging because the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word is not a castle that we as Christians hide in and defend. It is a lighthouse shining a beacon of hope into a broken world. We need to know what light to shine so people will respond. We need to be aware of what is going on in the world around us. We need to have the conversations at the lunch table and water cooler. Colossians 4, Colossians 4 says this, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer 
everyone. And that answer, everyone, doesn't mean the right answer. That answer could be, I don't know, let's find out. That is an answer, but we need to engage it with grace to be able to answer appropriately. And finally, I would like to point out that Paul's call of repentance is to all people. And it's the same as that of Jesus Christ, the call to repent. And if you were here in the Good Summer Reads when I shared from Malachi, that call to repentance was there as well. It is for the believer in Jesus as well as for the unbeliever. I don't know about you, but since I came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, I am not perfect since that moment, and I would assume neither are you. And there are still things that I daily need to repent of. Repentance is not just a call for the unbeliever, it is a call for the believer. In fact, we as Christians should be models of repentance. Part of our sharing the gospel is a willingness to admit when we are wrong. Part of sharing the gospel is willingness to admit when the church historically was wrong. Part of sharing the gospel is a willingness to approach with grace and humility, acknowledging that we might not have it all figured out just because we believe in Jesus. Admitting I do not know or admitting to making a mistake has engaged in more gospel conversations in my life than any argument has ever done. In fact, recently I've had conversations with people inside the church and people outside the church about what is going on in our church, the conversations we're having around gender, around race, around politics. And if you haven't been a part of those, I would encourage you, another shameless plug, to get involved in a learning circle this fall and have some of those conversations. My wife was talking to somebody who said, I am baffled by your conclusions, but I'm glad to hear a church is engaging in the conversation. We need to engage, but we need to do so with grace and humility. We need to bring the message of Jesus Christ to repent and believe, but we need to do so in a way that they can hear and not be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And when somebody rejects, which could happen, also being aware that they might not be rejecting the gospel, but they might be rejecting our method. Paul continually tries to re-engage the conversation, and it is worth the engagement. We hear disagreement all the time in our world right now, but we don't hear much humility. So bring salt into your conversations. Bring grace. Bring humility. Yes, bring the gospel. But bring it in a way that is appealing to those around us. Because the gospel is worth the risk. The gospel is worth the effort And the gospel is worth engaging in our world today. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done this morning. Father God, I thank you for your gospel. God, I thank you that we can put our faith and trust in you, that we can look at you and say, God, I have sinned, and I need you to deal with my sin. Lord, we praise you for that gospel. And God, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we go into the world to engage with wisdom, the world around us. God, help us be lights and beacons of hope. Help us do it with grace and humility. And Lord, for the things that we need to repent of, Lord, help us to be quick to repent and seek your forgiveness and the forgiveness of those around us. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Go in peace.